Well, I want to welcome all of you here this morning to Faith Bible Church. Thank you so much for uh, coming to be with us on this Lord's Day. Uh, thank you uh, more and more of you, I think, are showing up in person, and we appreciate that. But uh, we also understand those of you who need to be at home and are watching online. So uh, we appreciate you taking the opportunity to do that with us. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper at the end of this morning's service. Uh, we normally do that on the uh, first Sunday of the month, but uh, since last weekend was a holiday weekend, we've, uh, we've had that this morning. So I just wanted to let you know about that so you can be preparing your heart and mind uh, for the Lord's Supper at the end of our service here this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Um, you've come in kind of the middle of a, of a summer series. We've kind of informally called this the summer of love because we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we've uh, more formally titled this series A More Excellent Way. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with us, we're going to look at verses uh, 5 and 6 this morning, but I want to read verses 4 through 7 because this is kind of the heart of this passage in many ways that describes uh, love for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, may the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. There's a story about a psychology professor, and he uh, wasn't married and had no children. He, he lived next door to a family with uh, a numerous rambunctious sons. And uh, whenever the professor would hear one of the parents getting on to one of the children and scolding them, he'd often stick his head over the fence and he'd say, Mr. Smith, you should love your boy, not punish him. Love the child. Well, one day the professor had spent hours out in his driveway uh, pouring fresh cement, and one of these boys from next door came jumped right, and jumped right in the wet cement. The professor came roaring over and lifted the little boy up and began to scold him really severely. And the father's head, the father's, uh, 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 the son, the, the uh, little boy's father pokes his head over the fence and says, Professor, don't you remember you must love the child? The professor yelled back angrily, he said, I do love him. I love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. And I like that story because that's true of us far too often. Uh, we, we love in the abstract, it's a good idea, but we don't really love in the concrete when it gets down to the real issues of life. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul gets in the concrete uh, when it comes to love. Now, this chapter, if you've been with us, you know it's surrounded by these other two chapters. It's sandwiched between chapter 12 and 14 that are about spiritual gifts. And at the end of that section in chapter 12 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, and I show you a still more excellent way. And of course, that more excellent way is the way of love here in chapter 13. Now, in verses 1 to 3, we see what we call the priority of love, or it's necessity. Uh, you and I need to double down on love in our lives. Um, nothing is more important about us than our love. When you boil it down, life is a matter of loving. Life is about loving. It's about loving the Creator, and it's about loving His creatures. Love add values to, adds value to everything because without love, everything we do is nothing. That's what verses 1 to 3 tell us. Now, verses 4 to 7, we switch from uh, the, the uh, priority of love to the practices of love, from its necessity to its nature. So in verses 4 to 7, we really have a profile of love. 
And these verses define love by describing it. It tells us what love is by showing us what love does and what love doesn't do. And what we have here in these verses is 15 descriptions of love. And they're all verbs. So they all carry the idea of action. And the first two that we looked at a couple weeks ago, love is patient, love is kind. Those are kind of two umbrella descriptions of love. And then we have eight negatives, eight things love doesn't do, followed by five things love uh, does do. So love is known by what it includes, but also by what it excludes. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 has often been called the crown or the uh, crown jewel of the New Testament. And, and like a diamond, love has a lot of different facets to it. We can look at it from a lot of angles and vantage points and see its beauty and its perfections. And that's what we've been doing here these last few weeks and what I want to continue doing this morning and the next time. Uh, the last week, we're going to do verses 8 through 13 in one, uh, one big chunk. So we'll pick up a little bit of speed here in a couple of weeks. But uh, this morning, I want to look at the final five things that love excludes. Now, beginning in verse uh, 5, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. So five things love excludes. And the first one you'll notice here is love does not act unbecomingly. Now, you could translate that, love is not rude. In fact, some of your translations may say that. Now, the Greek word that's used here literally means without shape or form. So it's behavior that's out of bounds or kind of out of shape. And so the opposite of that would be behavior that is according to proper form. Um, don't act unbecomingly. You could translate that. Don't be rude or discourteous or ill-mannered. Um, in fact, our word uh, courteous comes from uh, uh, an ancient word that comes from the word court that refers to manners that prevailed in the palaces of kings and queens. So it came to mean showing consideration to people and their feelings and, and decorum and good behavior. Uh, someone described it like this, and this is a really good way to think about it. Courtesy is love in the little things. A lot of times we think about love in the big things of life, but, but courtesy and being polite is love in the little things. And the, the church at Corinth, if you know anything about this letter, was filled with rudeness. Back in chapter 11, we read about them celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate at the end of our service here this morning. And back in that day, they had a meal with the Lord's Supper, and they called it the Agape Feast or the Love Feast. Now think about this. They're having a love feast before the Lord's Supper, but nobody waited for other people to get there before they started eating. And the people who were wealthy got there and sat with other wealthy people and ate their really luxurious, wonderful food, and they let the poor people just eat what they had, which those poor people would have loved to have come and shared in a good meal with those in that day who had more. And on top of that, people were getting drunk and intoxicated at the Lord's Supper. You can imagine the impolite and rude things that happened as that occurred. Um, in chapter 14, you, you'll see if you read on that when it comes to spiritual gifts, people were monopolizing. Uh, they were interrupting. Everybody was talking at once. So Paul is reminding us back here in chapter 13, reminding the Corinthians that rudeness and being impolite and discourteous is a lack of love. Politeness is about loving your neighbor. It's about respecting other people. Courtesy treats all people the same regardless of their race or their face or their place, regardless of what race they are, regardless of how they look, 
regardless of what place or station uh, they have in life. Love treats everybody uh, the same and is courteous towards them. And love is tactful. I mean, it thinks about the feelings of other people and the way it says things. There's an old story I like. It's one of my favorite ones. It's about a man that went out of town, and he left his beloved cat with his brother. And after a few days of being gone, he called his brother to check in on things, and he said, how's my cat doing? He says, well, your cat died. And the brother said, well, gosh, why'd you have to break it to me like that? He says, that wasn't very kind or polite. And the brother said, well, what should I have done? He said, well, maybe when I called you the first time, you could have said, well, the cat's on the roof. And then when I called you the next day, you could say, well, you know, the cat won't eat or drink and is not doing very well, and I'm really worried. And then when I called the third time, you could have said, uh, the cat died. He said, you got it? And the brother said, yeah, I've got it. I understand. So he calls his brother uh, a few days later, and they're talking at the end of the conversation. He says, by the way, how's mom doing? And he says, well, she's on the roof. <clears throat> Using a little bit of tact, right? Not having to just be blunt and how everything's stated. But here are some courteous, well-mannered, tactful, loving words to make sure are often found in our vocabulary. Uh, One of them would be the word please, to say please, uh, to say thank you to others. Um, Even in our families, even with spouses, sometimes we get so accustomed to one another, we stop being polite. We don't say please when we ask for something. We don't say uh, thank you. That can happen over time. My, uh, my mother's uh, parents were named Otis and Bernice. Uh, they were a great, great couple. I used to love going to their house so much when I was a boy. But as they got older, they had two chairs, uh, two recliners that's right in front of a TV in their small living room. And my grandmother used to joke as she got older that she thought her name was While You're Up. Because my granddad, he would always wait there and sure you could see until she got up, till he needed something. He'd say, while you're up, you know, to, to get something to bring to him. And oftentimes that's the way we are in life, right? I mean, everybody just kind of feels like their name's while you're up when we're around them. Because sometimes maybe we're not as polite or courteous as we should be. But to say please, to say thank you, to say excuse me, to ask someone, can I help you? Uh, to say someone, now you can go first. When you love somebody, you'll go out of your way to do the little things that nobody else would do because love is polite and it's courteous and it's well-mannered. The next thing love excludes is selfishness. Notice what it says here. Love does not seek its own. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory. This refers to being preoccupied with the interests of self, of always looking out just for your own interests. Um, Some have translated this, love does not insist on its own way. Now, this was clearly a shot across the bow to the Corinthians because they were using their spiritual gifts for for selfish purposes. They were constantly vying for power and prestige. And if you go back to chapter 6, they were suing one another in the law courts of that day just to get their way. They were seeking their own. It was all about them. And that's why they had so much chaos and turmoil in the church there. Sometime back, I ran across a, a little uh, a list, and it's called proper, uh, Toddler Property Laws. And here's the property laws for toddlers. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing something or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like it's mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. 
Now, those are, are property laws for children, but sadly, a lot of that carries over into adulthood. We may get a little more sophisticated in how we would state it or how we carry it out, but that's the way many adults are if you really think about the way they live. But love isn't like that. Love has a servant spirit, not a selfish spirit. Um, R.C.H. Linsky, the great Lutheran uh, scholar, said this years ago, if you can cure selfishness, you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. That's true in many ways. If you can get rid of selfishness, you've replanted the Garden of Eden. You look at the church at Corinth, really their selfish spirit, that's what was the source of all the chaos and confusion there. I know I've said this many times before, but when I counsel young couples who are getting married, I always tell them the root, the root of every problem you'll ever have is selfishness. And so the answer to every problem is selflessness. It's that simple. The root of all of our problems is a selfish spirit uh, that seeks our own. That's the heart of our troubles. Go over to uh, Philippians chapter 2 if you have your Bible there with you. Philippians 2, this would probably be a verse you might want to go back to. It's a familiar one, but one we need to read often. Philippians 2, 2, uh, 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind or attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, sometimes people take this emptying of Christ or that he emptied himself of deity in some way. Uh, Jesus was, was God, very God of very God, even when he was on earth. The emptying really has more to do with what he added than something being taken away. Because notice what it says after it says he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found his appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is all that love is, and Christ is selfless. He stooped that low to come from heaven down to earth and to humble himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is our example of selflessness. And the self-giving of God in Christ is the heart of the gospel. God satisfied himself by sacrificing himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goal of the gospel, the ultimate goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the dethroning of self. It's putting God back in his rightful place. And that begins in the life of a person when we trust Christ as our Savior. And over the time in our spiritual life, the goal of that life is for self to be more and more dethroned and for God to be put um, in his rightful place. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. The third thing love excludes is being irritable. Notice in verse 5, love is not provoked. A lot of your translations will say love is not irritable. The, the Greek word that's used there is a word that means to make sharp or pointed. You could say this, an irritable person is a sharp person, or one word I like is they're prickly. <laughs> they're kind of prickly, right? They just kind of have a little, little needle sticking out of them. They, ha they have a jagged edge to their life. Here, here's a few synonyms for this. Touchy, quick to take offense, cantankerous, grumpy, grouchy. 
easily exasperated, quick to allow other people to get under your skin. Look, we live in a fallen world that's filled with people that irritate us and annoy us and make us angry. By the way, we often irritate and annoy and make other people angry. We we, we think about everybody else irritating us, but not how we irritate others. But think about this. Our irritability is really rooted in our self-centeredness. These two go uh, together. It doesn't seek its own, and it's not irritable, because really the the, the root of irritability is self-centeredness. It's when other people and events don't fit into our schedules and our plans. Now, we often blame our irritability with other people on our temperament. I've actually had people tell me before, well, you know, after all, you know, my father's Irish, or, you know, my mother's Italian, or, you know, that's just the way I am. Now, we can't blame it on our personality or our temperament. We also cut ourselves slack, I think, by by the idea that irritability is just kind of the natural response to life's little frustrations. That's That's just the way it is, that it's not that big a deal. But Paul says here, irritability is a failure of love. It's not some small thing. We just think about it as, well, you know, people just kind of get under my skin and bother me. It's not that big a deal. When we think about that it's a failure of love, it's the opposite of love, it should become a big deal. Phil Riken, in his book on 1 Corinthians 13, has this little statement. This is powerful. Irritability is anger's trigger finger. Irritability is the trigger finger of anger. Lewis Smead says it like this. Now, I hope this doesn't describe anyone here this morning, but if it does, um, you need to hear these words. To be irritable is to be in a constant countdown for a temperamental blast off. You know anybody like that? They're just always in a constant countdown for a temperamental blast off. It's to have your insides coiled, ready to spring into fury. There's some people like that. They're just always ready for a blast off. It's like their insides are coiled, just ready to spring at any time. Look, you and I should take our irritability a lot more seriously than we do because it's the opposite of love. Uh, several times in this series, I've mentioned uh, a, a little booklet by, uh, about, by Henry Drummond. He preached a sermon in 1884 called The Greatest Thing in the World, and he was talking about love. And when he comes to this idea of irritability, he calls it the vice of the virtuous. The virtuous people often have this vice, and they don't take it seriously. And then he says this, no form of vice, not worldliness, not greed of gold, not drunkenness itself does more to unchristianize society than evil temper. For embittering life, for breaking up communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom off childhood, in short, for sheer gratuitous misery-producing power, this influence stands alone. He's saying just being ready with a, a trigger to go off at any moment and being an irritable person is gratuitous misery producing power, it stands alone. Now think about Jesus. Jesus is the living demonstration of non irritability, which is another way of saying that Jesus is love. I mean, think of all the interruptions Jesus faced all the time, how his plans were changed. Think of all the the, the dumb questions and the incompetence of his disciples. You talk about a group that if there was a justification to get irritable, it it would have been with that group. But Jesus never shows the slightest hint of irritability in the Gospels. 
You know, this word that we find here, not to be irritable, is the, the verb's only found one other time in the New Testament, and it's actually used in a good way back in Acts 17, verse 16, where the apostle Paul, you remember he arrives in Athens, and he saw the city full of idols, and it says his spirit was provoked within him. He became irritated when he saw the city given to idolatry. So there is a righteous or a righteous anger or irritation at things that are wrong and sinful. But personal irritability is another matter, and that's what you and I probably experience most of the time. Look, to, to get rid of irritability, you've got to disarm the detonator. A lot of people have a detonator down there ready to go off. You've got to disarm it. And let me just mention a couple practical things to do that. One is to reduce stress in your life and tension. Uh, leave some margins in your life. Some people are irritable and exasperated all the time because there's no margin left in their life. You need some margins in your time. You need some margins in your finances. You need to know the things in life that uh, will trigger you uh, maybe to become irritable or to become exasperated. So just reducing stress and, and leaving some margin in life can greatly decrease an irritable spirit. But another, a second thing is to get at rest with God, to get at rest with God. Uh, if you have a lack of rest in God's sovereign plans and purposes, you're going to constantly being ir be irritated with things. When I'm not at peace with, I'm, with myself because I'm not at peace with God, then I'm easily frustrated by others and by circumstances beyond my control. So spend time every day to get at rest with God. Make sure you've got some margin in your life, and as you do that, you'll probably watch the, the detonator begin to be disarmed in life and the irritability level to decrease. So love's not irritable. Another action love excludes is, you'll notice here at the end of verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, that word take into account is an accounting term that means to count or to make a record of or like keeping a ledger. And here it refers to keeping track of wrongs and hurts that other people have done to you with the idea of settling the score later. Now, this is an area where all of us probably struggle to some degree, keeping a list of grudges, harboring resentment, um, holding uh, that resentment over the other person or using it against them, keeping a, a little black book filled with all the hurts and offenses and wrongs that you want to pay back that other people have done to you. It's like the man uh, many years ago, this was a long time ago, who uh, contracted rabies. And he goes to the doctor, and the doctor looks at him and sees his symptoms, and he says, sir, I'm sorry you've got rabies. There's nothing we can do about it. He says, uh, you know, you're not going to uh, be alive much longer, so my advice is to get your affairs in order. So the doctor leaves to give the man some time to be by himself, and as he gets ready to come back in the room, he sees him with a pad of paper just writing furiously. He kind of feels good, you know, that the guy's kind of accepted things, and he's uh, writing out his will. So the doctor walks in and says, man, I'm, I'm so glad you've accepted these troubles you have and, and that you're making out your will and kind of getting things in order. And the guy looked at him and says, this isn't my will. This is a list of all the people I want to bite before I die. And sadly, a lot of people have a list like that in their mind. Uh, they have a list of the people they'd like to bite if they could and uh, infect with some terrible disease. But love doesn't keep books on wrongs. 
It doesn't keep a tally of the insults and the hurts of others. It doesn't smolder over old resentments and long for revenge. Love chooses to forgive. Here's the way Lewis Smedes puts it. Love lets the past die. It moves people to a new beginning without settling the past. Love does not have to clear up all misunderstandings. Love prefers to tuck all the loose ends of past rights and wrongs in the bosom of forgiveness and pushes us into a new start. Love absorbs the wrong without trying to calculate how to get back and retaliate. One uh, quote I read this week in, in my reading that really ministered to me, someone said this, good friends are good forgivers. Good friends are good forgivers. And I have a lot of good forgivers in my life, and I'm very thankful for that. And I hope you do too. I hope you have some friends that are good forgivers. We all need that desperately in our lives. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiving somebody doesn't mean that you're saying what the person did wasn't right. I mean, it doesn't mean that it doesn't still hurt. It doesn't deny that there may be consequences that person has to suffer for what they did. But the word in uh, the Greek word that's translated forgive literally means to let something go, to let go of the resentment and the bitterness and the desire to get even or to retaliate against the person. Uh, Keeping a list of wrongs and savoring grudges and resentment creates an acidic soul that's filled with bitterness. And the worst thing about an unforgiving heart is it's antithetical to the gospel. It's the opposite of love. You and I have to choose to forgive if we're going to be those who live consistently with the gospel. Clara Barton, who was the founder of the American Red Cross, was reminded one day by one of her friends of a vicious deed that somebody had done to her years before. And she acted as if she'd never even heard of the incident. And so her friend was surprised and says, you remember that incident, don't you? And Barton said this, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. And I like that. We have to forget things. We have to remember to forget. You and I need to remember to forget some things. And we need to remember to forgive because love absorbs the debt. It absorbs the hurt. And I release other people from my debt because love doesn't keep score. Love refuses to hold another person ransom a person that needs our grace and our forgiveness. Love chooses to forgive. They say, well, how can we forgive other people? Man, you don't know what this person did to me and how how badly they've done me. It all begins with God's grace and God's mercy to us. Think about this. Not forgiving other people burns the bridge that we ourselves have to cross. You and I have to cross a bridge. We need forgiveness. When we fail to forgive other people, we're in essence burning the bridge that we ourselves need to cross to receive God's forgiveness. God doesn't keep score with us. That's one of the greatest things we can ever think about in all of our life. God doesn't keep score with us. Romans 4.8 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord doesn't take into account. That's that accounting word again. He doesn't have it on a ledger against us. Jesus absorbed it all for us, all the sin, all the hurt, all the wickedness, our lying, our cheating, our deceiving, our stealing, our immorality, our gossip, whatever it is. And all those sins didn't just miraculously vanish. They've been taken away because they were born by Jesus on the cross. 
It was all put on him, and it was all put on him, the only one it could be put upon because he's the only one who's blameless and sinless and perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God doesn't have a ledger against us. Our sin was put to the account of Christ, and we trust in him. All of his righteousness is credited to us. The Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. All of our sin was credited to his account. We trust in him. All of his righteousness gets credited to our account. What a transaction. He assumed our full debt. Hebrews 10.17 says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. There's no record in heaven of our sins. Why are you and I keeping lists with other people? It's incongruent, isn't it? God doesn't have a list against me. Yet I want to go out and keep a list against others. You all know the story in Matthew 18. The man who's forgiven a great debt and won't forgive another man a lesser debt. Remember that story Jesus told? What does Jesus say? He's going to turn that man over to the torturers. Uh, the worst prison in the world is the prison of an unforgiving heart. It, it, it turns you over to torture in your life. You and I need to be those who forgive because God keeps no record of our sins. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Aren't you gl glad God does that? There was a wealthy, land, a wealthy uh, uh, owner of a Rolls-Royce one time that took it to Europe on an extended trip. And while he was there in France, he had some mechanical problems. So he calls back and, and he's surprised. Uh, Rolls-Royce uh, uh, responds in royal fashion. They put a mechanic on a private jet with all the tools, fly him to France to make all the repairs. And all this time, this owner is wondering how, how much this is going to cost him. However, after several months, he didn't receive a bill from Rolls-Royce for this, and so he directed his secretary to contact him to inquire about the charges. He received a prompt reply from Rolls-Royce, and in typical British fashion, it simply said, we have no recollection or record of any Rolls-Royce having ever had a breakdown or being in need of repair anywhere in France. It's the same for all of us who've trusted Christ. Our sins are off the books. There's no record of them. And so let's extend that same grace to others. Let me just ask you this morning, who is God calling you this morning to forgive? Who is God calling you to love this morning by tearing up the score sheet, by balancing the ledger, by saying, I have no record that you've ever done me wrong? That's what love does. And you may need to do that today. You may need to do it right now. Don't spend any more time turned over to the tortures, living in the prison house of your own making, an unforgiving heart. Let it go. Don't take into account a wrong suffered. Well, the final thing here about love in verse 6 is love is not happy about sin, but it celebrates the truth. We'll look at these two together because they share this common verb, the idea of rejoicing or celebrating in the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. <clears throat> Years ago, I used to love to listen to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. I don't catch him as often now, but great Bible teacher. He's been, been gone now for about 30 years. But I'll never forget a comment he made one time. He says, you know, a lot of Christians, when they think about love, to them it's just sloppy agape. You know, just kind of a sloppy agape that just kind of has no boundaries to it and, and really uh, embraces anything and everything. 
And, and agape love in the Bible, true agape, it isn't sloppy agape. Um, it has discrimination and discernment. It's not without boundaries. It's not a shallow love that embraces everything and everybody, no matter what they do or what they believe. Agape love is a discerning, discriminating love. Love and truth are soulmates. A love makes judgment calls. Love doesn't just throw its arms around everything. It lives within the boundaries of God's objective truth and submits itself to the revealed truth of God in the Bible. Love has a moral compass and it has a theological grid. It's a love that's governed and guided uh, by truth. And again, the Corinthians had an undiscerning love. Remember back in chapter 5, there was a man there. They said he, had, he was committing a sin that even the ungodly didn't commit. He was having sexual relations with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. And the problem is the Corinthians were arrogant about this, Paul said, rather than mourning over it. So they were rejoicing in unrighteousness rather than rejoicing in the truth. Dale Burke says it like this. He says, when I'm compelled by love, I'm repelled by unrighteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. Let me just give a few practical implications of this. One is love doesn't rejoice in its own sin. And I think this can, can take a lot of forms, but one way I would see this is in our entertainment choices. As you and I choose entertainment, we don't want to rejoice in our own sin. We don't want to applaud and celebrate sin and the choices we make in our own lives, especially in our own entertainment. Um, also, love doesn't influence other people to sin. Uh, loving someone means I'll influence them to do what's right. And uh, for young people who are here, uh, and some of us maybe that are older, but if you're a young person and you have friends and uh, they tell you they love you, but they're leading you to do things that are against God's will and God's word, those people don't really love you because agape love sacrifices itself for the highest good of another person. If you're a young person and you're not married and you're dating someone and they're wanting you to do things that are contrary to Scripture, they tell you how much they love you, they don't really love you. At least they don't love you with agape love because it wants the highest good of others, and it, it does not rejoice or celebrate unrighteousness, but it rejoices uh, with the truth. So love doesn't rejoice in its own sin, but love doesn't rejoice in the sin of others. We have a culture today that divorces love and truth, talks a lot about love and everything we should do in loving everybody, but it totally excludes the idea of truth. And we see this a lot in our culture today with same-sex marriage. It's applauded in our culture today. It's celebrated. In fact, if people don't want you to just agree with it, they want you to applaud it and celebrate it. And all the talk is about love, but there's never a talk in that about truth. And the best thing that you and I can do for any person ultimately is to tell them the truth, to tell them the truth in love, but to tell them the truth. We can love the sinner, but we can never love their sin. Love is never in isolation from or in opposition to truth. So you and I aren't to rejoice in the sin of other people. One man I read this week said this. This will hit home with some of us. One of the most common ways to rejoice in the wrongdoing and suffering of others is through gossip. There's an almost universal desire among people to be entertained to hear how others have failed. That's true, isn't it? 
See, that's universal desire to hear about the unrighteousness, maybe or the sin or the, the bad things that other people have done. Instead of being entertained by the failures of others, we ought to mourn over them. And then finally, another implication of this, I think, is love doesn't rejoice in theological doctrinal error, but it rejoices in the truth. Love is never a friend to error. A truth is love's favorite companion, and love can never be indifferent to the truth. God is love, yet the Bible tells us He hates error and false doctrine, and so should we. Love rejoices in the great truths of the Bible, rejoices in the gospel because Jesus is the truth. Love will do everything it can to promote and to protect the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love rejoices in all the truth surrounding the person of Jesus, His virgin birth and His atoning death, His literal bodily resurrection, His coming again to this earth to judge the living and the dead. Love rejoices in those things, in the truth. Look, it's never loving to pretend that Bible doctrine doesn't matter because false doctrine leads people away from God and away from Christ. It's not loving to lead people astray to an awful Christless eternity by telling them there's some other way to God. Jesus is the only Savior, and He's the only sacrifice for sin, according to Scripture. That's the truth. And to tell people otherwise, I believe, is the epitome of lovelessness for that person. Love rejoices when God's truth is lived, when it's loved, and it's proclaimed. And that truth never, ever changes. There's a story about a man who came to visit an old friend of his who was a music teacher. And he walked in to see his old friend, and he says, what's the good news today? And the old teacher was silent, and he walked across the room and picked up a, a small hammer and struck a tuning fork, and the note sounded throughout the room. And then he said this, that is A, my friend. It is A today. It was A 5,000 years ago, and it'll be A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs sings off key. The tenor across the hall flats on his high notes, and the piano downstairs is out of tune. He struck the note again and says, that is A, my friend, and that is the good news for today. God's truth's like that. It doesn't change, and that's the good news. And the truth of the gospel is good news. We have peace and we have salvation uh, through Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's the good news today. That's the good news every day. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you've never received that good news for yourself, I pray that you'll do that here this morning before we leave. Jesus purchased a pardon for you when He died on the cross. He's, he absorbed the sin debt that's against you. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's all you have to do this morning. Call upon Him. Receive Him. Take Him to be your Savior. May those of us who know Him, may we proclaim and live and celebrate of this truth God's given to us. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this profile of the true nature of love, for agape love. Father, it's so antithetical to our culture and to what we see today, and it's so contrary to our own nature. But Father, we ask as we surrender to You, to the power of the Holy Spirit, that You'll fill us with this love, this agape love that reflects You and reflects the cross. And Father, now we turn our hearts to the cross where Jesus gave Himself for us as we take the Lord's Supper together. We pray that You'll minister to us now as we fellowship together.
around this Lord's table. We ask these things in Jesus' name.